This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. Series 2 was recorded over the summer of 2017. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens. I was the writer's tutor here at the Royal Court Theatre in 2001 when Leo Butler, fresh from a beautiful elegiac theatre debut in the 2000 Young Writers Festival with his play Made of Stone, was given a three-month residency and shared his office with me. We drank a lot of tea together and ate a fair few biscuits and talked at length about the plays we'd read and hoped to write. And one Friday, he told me he was going to spend the weekend in the office. He was going to stay there from Friday night and work all weekend and try and write a new play. I thought he was bonkers and wished him luck and went home. When I turned up on Monday morning, the office was a thick fog of cigarette smoke. Leo was grinning through it as he handed me his new play. It was a play called Redundant. I read it that morning and it changed my writing life. Having been told as an undergraduate at the end of the 80s that male writers couldn't really write women roles, I'd assumed that to be the case and so considered it best not to try. But here was a writer in his early 20s who, with Redundant, created a character in a 17-year-old Lucy that was complicated and heartbroken, full of contradictions and driven by desire and apathy alike. It was an arresting play. It led me directly to change the gender of the protagonist of the play I'd been stuck on for a few months and then went on to be called Port and then to create characters like Harper Regan and the old lady at the end of pornography. Redundant won the George Devine Award in 2001 and was produced here in the theatre downstairs barely five months later. The years that followed Redundant have seen Butler carve a particular and fundamental place in British playwriting. He took on the role of writer's tutor in the Young Writers Programme when I left the post and for seven years became a mentor and teacher to the most exciting crop of first-time playwrights to emerge for a generation. Nick Payne, Polly Stenham, Alice Birch, Anya Rice and Emma Crow are among the playwrights who have sung his praises in these conversations. And the plays he's produced in that time have been startling in their range and arresting in their force. He followed Redundant at the court with 2004's brilliant and upsetting Lucky Dog, a savage excavation of a marriage in psychosis. And in 2008, with Face in the Crowd, a tender and yearning play about the damage of debt and the breaks of love. He's written the epic historical expressionistic I'll Be the Devil for the Royal Shakespeare Company and collaborated with choreographers and songwriters alike. His 2016 play Boy at the Almeida was a fragile and astonishing thing. In collaboration with the director Sasha Wares, he created a world of isolation in contemporary London following a boy's journey around an entire city as he stares into its damaged soul. It was my favourite play last year and a glorious example of Butler at his best. For me, he is a poet of the human damage of poverty. His language is terse and fractured. He reminds me as much of Emily Dickinson as he does of many playwrights. He is, I think, as close as English theatre has come to the master of Bavarian naturalism, Franz Xavier Kurtz. Leo Butler, welcome to the Royal Court. (laughs) Fucking hell. <laughs> Do you read That's Kurtz? really nice, thank no, you. No, but it's really... I was, when I was writing this, I was thinking, yeah, he's our Kurtz. He's our Kurtz. He's, and, and it's... I don't know if you read him. I do, yeah. I know through the leaves. Yeah, I think we, I think we were both read him at the read same time. Read him at the same time, <laughs> Through yeah. the leaves and... Yeah. Uh, oh, what's the other one? Uh, Tom Fool. The Nest, Stalahoff, yeah. Tom, Tom Fool. Yeah. The, uh, and your plays remind me of his... For that kind of economy and the locking into the, the existential kind of consequence of poverty. Yeah, it's really it's really lovely to, to speak to you. Yeah, yeah. you too. It was you an too. amazing time that three months. It was. It was really exciting. I mean, I'm, I don't know about you, but you know how time is it, it is elastic, in that there are some experiences which last for years, which feel as though they've lasted for minutes, or you can forget about really easily. Particularly those three months felt as though they had a major impact on my thinking and my writing, as I kind of said in the introduction. It was really special. I think we were both at similar places, Yeah, I think. yeah. 
and um, I think we were firing off each other. And yeah. I remember, well, I remember vividly, I think you were smoking then. And yeah, I was trying to, when I was writing the introduction, I was yeah. trying to think, was I smoking at that stage? Yeah. I think so I we were both been. filling that room. <laughs> and, it was, and it was before the, I think the, it's the site opposite the, the main building, yeah. before it was refurbished. Yeah. So it was quite dingy. It was a dingy role. <laughs> and it, I remember it, it was a little red room and we were filling it with cigarette smoke and we had a tape player in there. And I think oh, we... Yeah. <laughs> We had cassettes of uh, the band and Dylan and whatever, <laughs> and so we played that, and we we were just and we, I remember you, um, you work on Herons as well, I think. Yeah, around the same yeah, time. that's right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and Herons was in rehearsal and production. At that's that right. Time. That's right. Yeah. It was. Yeah, it was, and I was kind of yeah finding my way with. And I remember think I remember starting that uh, residential and Graham Wybrow, the uh, the literary manager, saying there are slots in the autumn. And I'm thinking, oh, oh really? Oh, I, oh, I should use this this three months oh, to, make, to, to submit yeah. something for me yeah. for that. Yeah. So, and uh, it was a really intense time. And do you remember that weekend where you locked yourself in the room for the yeah. weekend? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've tried to replicate that since and do all-nighters, and sometimes I manage them, but yeah. I think being a bit younger, you could have more stamina and are able to do that. And yeah. I remember just kind of... I th- I'd already started the play. I think I'd done the first scene or two scenes, so I was, right. I'd got through that, um, that shaky start of finding who the finding the main character yeah. who can, who drove that play. Yeah, I knew where she was. I knew who she was. I knew that I vividly knew the flat that she was in. Yeah, and what the situation was. So it was kind of in a really good place. I think if I was starting with nothing at all, mm. I would have just floundered and come right. out with a load of crap. Yeah, but I think having that starting point there, it was ready to ready to just go. And I remember there were moments in the play that withstood the several drafts after that, and was were in the final production. Yeah, and you can feel it when you're writing them, and it's just sort of flowing out of you. You must feel it all the time. It's just kind of um, you're not in control of it. Yeah, lovely. And so there was a lot of that, and then there were other times where you're just kind of going, Ah, I need to get to the end of this scene, so oh, I'll just. Right, any old right, rubbish. something functional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was, I think, in that early draft, there was a, the character had a big, old, you know, a huge speech right. that explained everything <laughs> <laughs> about why she, why she was doing what she was doing, who she was, and yeah. and actually, in the end, that all went because part of it was n- not not needing all that information about who she was. You, you just know. needed to get it out of your system yeah. to articulate it. That's right. I, mean, I, I want to go. Thing. I want to. I mean, I want. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to the writing of that play and the writing of other plays, but. I want to go right back to the beginning uh, and ask the question which I ask of everybody here, which is when was the first time that you went to the theatre? Uh, and I can't really remember. Great. I, I Good rem- start, Leo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I remember going, because in Sheffield, I remember going to see lots of things at the Crucible, including right. like Ken Dodd and the Crankies Brilliant. and stuff like that when, when I was very small and yeah. pantomimes. Yeah. And and then I remember, but this must be as I'm getting older, think, thinking back, you know, seeing stuff at, at, the, at the Crucible and with school. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I'm rocketing ahead into sort of almost almost adolescence if I start thinking about those shows. But early on, though, going to the I remember going to the circus, and being really scared. They had these giant spiders in the circus. Wow. Maybe I dreamt them afterwards. I don't know, <laughs> but I've got a memory of and being really but scared. Actual spiders. Yeah, hanging or, down from the circus wow. roof. Now I don't. I don't know if I just dreamt that, or because I was I think I was very small then. But I, I guess I guess that was probably the first one because circuses, you know, kind of theatre, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But, and I remember. As is Ken Dodd. What was Ken Dodd like? Oh, brilliant! He had the, <laughs> like, the Diddy Man, and I remember getting a tickling stick to take away at the end of it. It was brilliant. It was great. He, He's amazing, and uh, yeah, so I was aware of I suppose the theatre as a as a place to go and a place to to enjoy yeah. from an from an early age, and you know my parents were very you know were great in in, in the sense of taking me there to see stuff, yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, and then I remember being in stuff at school, like I remember being in uh, this is probably infant school, right. doing like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and being were you, what, being. Were you, I think I was dopey, honestly. <laughs> and uh, 
And I remember walking on, I've got a vivid memory of what, and I must have been tiny and walking on at the end of a line of other dwarfs. And and all the parents sat there going, ah. <laughs> and I, it's, really, it's really stayed with that, that memory. Did you feel patronised or affirmed, kind of welcomed? Just scared, I just think. <laughs> but, 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 uh, but I think since... After, after, I mean, all the way through school, I was always wanting to, be, you know, be in the plays and do yeah. plays and and, yeah. and uh, all of that. So from a, you born in Sheffield? Yeah. And lived there right until you went to university or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, till I was uh, eighteen. So what kind of school did you go to? Was it? It was just a sort of normal comprehensive. Right. It was a, um, a lived group in an area called Pittsmoor yeah. in Sheffield, um, which if. If you're not from Pittsmoor, it has a bad reputation. Go, right. oh, don't go to Pittsmoor and all right. of this. Uh, for whatever reason, it's still got a little bit of that. But actually, if you're from there, mm-hmm. it's you know it's, it's it's a brilliant area. What was brilliant about it? Um, just the vibrancy, and it was, and it's a really diverse area. Was it an old mining town? The name would suggest that it might be. I guess it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it would. Yeah, it, it it will have been, and it's right by the the, the sort of the industrial district at a cliff it's just sort of a, yeah. above that area kind of next door so yeah i remember when as a kid i i suppose a lot of the the factories had shut down and mm. a lot of that whole area had had gone i remember on saturdays go we me and my friends would go out biking around those areas and sort of sneak into the factories and stuff and wow. mess about around around there that's quite cool so you kind of felt i mean i wasn't really aware of what what that what those factories were or the yeah. significance that they were shut down or whatever. It was just play, uh, remarkable playgrounds. Yeah. 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 And it, it, it was great area as well because all of, you know, my, friend, my friends were there, yeah. and, as any area is. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, they would, it, the school I went to was just sort of standard uh, comp- comprehensive. Did school. you get the opportunity to be in the school plays? Were you in, were you in school plays? Well, yeah, I kind of made that happen. Do you remember it, in primary school, yeah. I, uh, I, I put on a play. Um, that you'd written yourself. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, <laughs> amazing. It was me and a friend, and we wrote this play called The Happy Hospital, and uh, <laughs> and it was basically um, we'd been watching a lot of Monty Python and stuff, and we were basically two and young the young ones and and all this in primary school. That's quite yeah. Young to be watching Python and the young ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's right at that time. So it's yeah, we're talking about early you know, early, early 80s, 80s, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know we we got our Betamax. Video, so we were able to get you know the Python stuff Brilliant. on video Brilliant. or tape it when it was up when it was on and yeah. the young ones was on. And so we were inspired inspired by that and just wanted to do it ourselves. And so we wrote this play where we were two surgeons that came on with our outfits and we we planted somebody in an audience. Uh, I remember he was called Wayne Clay, and we uh, <laughs> Wayne Clay. <laughs> yeah, why do I remember? Because it's the best it's name. Ever. I've got to put it in a play, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, we dragged him out of the audience. We dragged him out of the audience, and everybody was, "Oh, what's going on?" And we put him on a, it must have just been a table, but it was our operating theatre, and we had this sort of um, uh, guard, garden implements, gardening implements. So we sort of pretended to cut him open, and we got loads of fake blood, and there was blood everywhere, and <laughs> and uh, we were dragging like push chairs out of him and chicken legs. It was just, it was just an excuse to make a big old mess and cover the. Uh, um, it was in the old gym hall, so we we just we just made a right mess of the place, and I don't know, the, I don't think the teachers ever commented on what we did. <laughs> you didn't get, they didn't. No, they, they didn't try and stop you. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, so, and I think, yeah, it's going back to, you know, from an early age, just enjoying being on stage and yeah. Performing and then and did that carry on through secondary school? Yeah, yeah. well, I can't. I joined a youth theatre in Sheffield when I was uh, uh, eleven, and uh, uh, and I carry and I worked with that youth theatre all the way through secondary school because I had a bad time at secondary school. I didn't. I didn't enjoy it very much, and I, and, um, I managed to in the end. I managed to scrape through what I needed, but I did. I was truanted a lot and did all of this. Right. Um, but at the, I knew that it's foolish now because I think back and I, I think back at all the stuff I could have been learning, but um, in a way, but I kind of knew what it was I kind of wanted to do to be involved in, and so I was going I was going to this youth theatre, and it was an unusual youth theatre 
It was run by a woman called Meg Jepson. And, uh, and she, all she did was Shakespeare's. And then she'd do Shakespeare's or a, a devised piece based on, say, uh, a Grimm's fairy tale, mm -hmm. but the original source. Yeah. And she had a very... I don't think you'd get it in many youth theatres where you would go there on the Sunday morning and all of you would clean the building. That would be the first thing you do. You sort of clean and, and cleanse the building. Wow. And she used a lot of sort of Japanese methods of theatre directing, like used a lot of mirrors and was into gestures and movement and all of these things that I don't think a lot of youth theatres were doing. And, and um, you're engaging with that at 12, 13. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And doing Shakespeare and yeah. not kind of dumbing it down in mm -hmm. any way, you mm -hmm. know, just f saying learn it and we'll, we'll work out what it, what it means, what, what the lines mean. So from a very early age, you know, you're just sort of faced with the Shakespearean verse and forced to get your sort of tongue around it and yeah. to understand it. I think yeah. it was... Now I can pick up a virtually any a Shakespeare play I haven't read and can pretty much read it quite easily. Effortlessly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah. of that access into that language yeah. at that age. And I think it's, I mean, it's like, I mean, you don't think about it at the time, but it just, even the the stories and the, the plays we did and getting the chance to sort of get into those characters, they kind of inform your sense of the world around you. So, yeah. um, in, in, in a much, I'm not maybe a much deeper way than I would have got at secondary school. Right. Wow. You know, sort of a lesson in yeah. life and, and what what human beings are and what they can be. I, was, I remember playing um, Shylock when I was 14 mm. and then we took that to the Crucible studio. Wow. And, you know, taking on a part like that and... I I'm sounding a bit wanky. No, so, you're not. But, uh, um, but, you know, when, you, when you're forced to learn a speech like hath not a due eyes, hath not a due yeah. senses, dimensions, affections, yeah. passions, and yeah. and to sort of learn that and also understand what that means, it does inform you, um, Very inform deeply. you about the world, about the world. Yeah. So. Invo in informing you artistically as well as politically as well as just as a human. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing she did, the di the director as well, is because because you know I loved acting. I, I still any any opportunity now to sort of read a part or mm -hmm. if we're doing a read through or some, uh, something, I'll jump jump at it. But mm -hmm. um, I think around that time when I started the youth theatre, I'd been writing lots of like books and stuff. Right. You know, just writing little story, like loads yeah. of little notepads. And the 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 director of the youth theatre noticed that, and whenever we were devising a show, would kind of forced me to write a you know one little chunk of it or something or a speech in it or and would always say you should keep that up you should keep up the writing are you still in touch with her uh i saw her a few years ago yeah and i'm in touch with a lot of the old gang right. from the youth theater so one of the joys of doing this whole uh podcast especially this series more than the first series i think is people talking about figures like that who uh, with great affection and clarity and articulacy, who've empowered and released them as artists. Yeah. It's really infectious. And they didn't have much funding and just kept it, you know. Do you know what I mean? They yeah, no, it's hard it work. Years, you know? It's a fucking Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good, good Were you Did you, was school ever a place you wrote in as well? Or was writing a, a, a private space of creativity that you could bring to the youth theatre? Yeah, um... I think again. We, I think another friend we put on a, a little play, mm. which was just. I, remember, I think we nicked. He was in the youth theatre as well. I think we took some of the costumes from the youth theatre. <clears throat> we were doing Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I was playing Friar Lawrence, so I had this sort of monk's outfit. So I took that. <laughs> Great. And he had. I can't remember what his costume was, and we just had this another kind of slapstick. Sort of, <laughs> this, um, I was. We were, I was really into Laurel and Hardy and Chaplin. I was a big Chaplin buff and right. around that time. So I was kind of, you know, sponging. All that stuff. And that's a, I mean, that's a little. It's, a, it's quite precocious to be into Chaplin as an early teenager, unless you were born in like nineteen ten, in which case he would be yeah. contemporary. You had an interest in historical cinema. Well, it was it was a time when you, you remember when half five every every day, yeah. Laurel and Hardy would come on. Um, well, I, I, my memory is of Harold Lloyd. Yeah, and Harold Lloyd. And the best bits of Harold, like clip shows of the best. Bits of Harold yeah, Lloyd films. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's like, fantastic. It was never the entirety of Safety First. It was always. It was always thing. hanging from the top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, always exactly. that scene. It's still a great scene. Yeah, it's amazing. But, uh, yeah, but there's that, and I had a friend in the uh, uh, friend in the youth theatre, Andrew Shepherd, who's uh, still acting, and he 
he kind of got me into Chaplin right. a little bit because he what was what was he much... liked about Chaplin at the time? Can you identify what it was about him? Oh, I mean, he's just incredible to watch, isn't he? I yeah. mean, Laurel and Hardy are hilarious, but Chaplin is kind of he's hypnotic in what he can yeah. do. And and the more I learnt about him, the more impressed I was. And there was a TV show that I watched around that same time, which must have been about 12, and it was called Unknown Chaplin. Right. And it was all the... They'd found all the old... Uh, uh, the foot, uh, All the old footage that he'd filmed on set. Because he didn't write the story beforehand. He would just build a set with a kind of vague idea of what the film might be. Yeah. Set all the cameras up, keep the crew there, and just improvise. And they had all this footage of him improvising the film and working out how he would put a film together, put a story together. Wow. And it's sort of incredible. You see that a, a little 20-minute film, which just feels so simple, took months and months to work out and get it to its place of real simplicity. Wow. And, and, wow. and I suppose... And it really... Uh, it, I suppose it's the first time you're uh, aware of how an, an, a creative person works and a, and a kind of a process. And mm -hmm. then you think, oh, yeah, you do kind of fuck up. You do write and start all again. And yeah. you do. Yeah. And, there's a, and you can see him, you know, getting frustrated in, uh, with... Uh, with a film, he's playing a bellboy in one one film, and mm -hmm. he doesn't know what to do with the character, so he just brings in loads of bellboys at one point to sort of <laughs> fill the scene with bellboys because it must provide some kind of an answer. And then he scraps that, and then he changes his costume and becomes another character. And and so you kind of think, oh wow. yeah, that's how you make something. You kind of just yeah. sort of make it up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you, you, know, you try, have an, you, an idea. You try and, and get it wrong, and try yeah. and get it wrong, and try and get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I think. I wasn't thinking of it in those terms then, but thinking back, um, I, I can I can see that that had an effect on, especially late, late, later down the line when I was making my own stuff. You know, you can't think of well, oh yeah, you remember what you remember how Chaplin worked. It's it's okay. When you say uh, you speak really clearly about being at secondary school, and uh, knowing and f finding secondary school redundant because you knew completely what you were going to do. It wasn't just that. It wasn't as pre uh, say precocious as that. I mean, I was having a hard time right. as well. I was. But when but was that to work in theatre, to work as an actor, to work as a writer, to work in television as well? Or I don't know. What was that? I remember. I remember. I used to like bunk off school, and I I, I, I had a friend who lived in an area called Chapel Town, which is like I don't know half an hour out of Sheffield. Yeah. It fe felt like an eternity. You yeah. Know? And I remember being on the bus on the way to school and going past the school and thinking, shall I go in today? Nah, fuck it. And uh, and instead I'd get on this bus and um, I had a, like a Groucho, a, a biography of Groucho Marx and I'd be reading that. And, um, and I think, you know, I loved all, I loved all those comedians. I, I, loved, I was getting to Woody Allen and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and so I think, I suppose I was thinking a little bit, but I, I just knew I wanted to sort of, it would be, yeah, I loved theatre right. and and um, and theatre and film. I just wanted to be making stuff and yeah. and um, I think and I was writing stuff down, having ideas and yeah for things. So a question Maybe, which will be odd for anybody under the age of thirty, probably. Like, what age did you leave school? Um, God, I think I was. Uh, I was the youngest in our year, or one of the youngest. Yeah. So I think I might have been fifteen. And you didn't do A-levels, you didn't... I start, what I did, because I managed to, you know, and again, thanks to my parents kind of pushed me, saying, you must get something something from this. Yeah. And so they, they, they pushed me. So I, I started doing A-levels um, at um, uh, college in Sheffield. Uh, it was a, I did a theatre studies one right. and an English literature one. So two I, good ones for your interests. Yeah, but yeah. I left after a term. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't enjoy it. Right. I didn't enjoy sitting down and reading these things and having to write essays mm. on them. And I knew that a few corridors down away, there was a performing arts course that they were putting on shows. And that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to sit there sort of writing essays. I wanted to do that. So, so did you? I kind of just left, yeah. <laughs> and um, 
I kind of did asked. Did you bunk off or did you tell your I, I asked the head of, head of drama who's yeah. doing performance, would it be okay if I, you know, if next September when you start, if I do this? And she said, yeah. And then I, I told my parents and they were like, what the, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> but I was always, you know, it's kind of, I think I've, once I've sort of set my mind to something, I'll, mm. I'll just do it. And so you did, you did, you, you went and did a performing arts B-Tech, would it have been? It was a B-Tech, yeah, yeah. And it, was, it was a two-year thing and it was, yeah, it was magic. And, was it? and it was around that time where I suppose it was coming, getting, um, uh, expo, I remember we did a little bit of Look Back in Anger we sort of, uh, as part, we, we had to perform a couple of scenes from Look Back in Anger. Yeah. I, I got to play Jimmy Porter. Wow. I was I was terrible. I was really bad. <laughs> but, I, but I really loved it. I really loved the play. And um, Joe Orton as well. Yeah. And I think, yeah, Carol yeah. Ch- I remember I remember suddenly accumulating all those Matthew and uh, books. The Black Spine books. Yeah, the Black yeah, Spine yeah. books. Yeah. Joe With, Orton, yeah. Carol Churchill plays Lovely. one. Edward Bond plays one. So you go, oh, what's all this stuff? Right. And... Um, and I, rem- I remember, actually, he might have been at school towards the end where we did have a school trip to see a, a, a performance of Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Mm-hmm. And, and that being a really significant thing because I think they'd played with the text and made it, they, because suddenly they, the anarchist, it's sort of a farce, isn't mm. it, the anarchist in yeah, the police station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, suddenly they broke out and started talking about like, Thatcher and the... And the and the miners and mm. stuff. I thought, what's what's going on? <laughs> what's happening? This is an Ital- this is an old Italian play, isn't it? And uh, and uh, it, but it was really you know they kind of spoke to spoke to the uh, spoke yeah. to us and it maybe it was really powerful. Yeah. And so there was that, and then the and then you start thinking, oh, there's other things as well as the, all the Shakespeare and all of that. And um, and so that was, and um, and around that time, I wasn't. Sh- I, th- I wasn't sure if I wanted to di- do acting or yeah. directing. Or Were you still writing at that stage? Or yeah, I was yeah. Writing, writing bits. And, yeah, I wrote things and me and me and a friend made a, f- uh, a film mm. uh, at college that we, we sort of wrote together mm-hmm. and I th- remember writing things as part of the course that you had to do as well. And yeah. and and by that, you know, by that time you're so Scorsese and, yeah. and, and all of that influence and realising what... And the Methuen plays. And yeah. So accumulating a yeah. whole, your own personal yeah. canon yeah. of drama uh, and film. Yeah. And and to prepare you, it's like going into a cocoon. Yeah. You're going into a cultural cocoon. That's right. To kind of infuse yourself with it. with the. And what do you do with it all? Yeah. And you kind of think, well, I suppose it's wanting to be, wanting to create something. Yeah. So the best, yeah, so... The right, the writer is is at the beginning of all those process. Did you go process. to Rose Bruford? Is that an error of of my I brain? I did. Yeah, yeah I did. did. So, Directing. Uh, no, no. There's uh, yeah. Me and fr- me and my friend Huss, who uh, we, I know Huss. He yeah. was in he was in early plays of yours. He was in yeah. Made of Stone. Yeah, that's and right. uh, we both ke- we both uh, uh, we did the B Tech, and then we came down to uh, we got into Rose Bruford, and we wanted to go to Rose Bruford because it's where Gary Oldman had been. So it was like, oh, brilliant, Gary Oldman came. Right. And, uh, and we got in, but I hosted the actor's course and there was a writer's course, so I went on, I, I went on that. And, um, but I uh, only, I didn't see, again, like the A-levels, I, I think in the beginning of the second year I left. Right. Oh, I can't, I either got kicked out or I left. It what year was this? Second, this was roughly... Second year. So nine, So what, what year in terms oh, of... Oh, we need, uh, yeah. Um, Mid-90s? Yeah, I... Hang on, I started in ninety three, so, so nineteen ninety four, I I yeah. I I, uh, I left, and arrogantly thought, oh, I don't need this. I mean, we were kind of naughty boys all mm. living together as well. Yeah, and there's you know more enjoyable things. <laughs> than, uh, what kind being, of things? Well, yeah. uh, studying hard. Studying <laughs> yeah, exactly. And. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and we started being playing in a band and stuff, and you know, with uh, Dan, who I still make music with, we were in a band together. So we it was kind of enjoying the life of what kind of music were you making? Just like groovy rock and roll, <laughs> and it was uh, you know, very, you know it's kind of still almost like the stuff we still still do. Always been part of your kind of sense of self as music, as far yeah. as I've known you. Yeah, yeah, and and you and you know, uh, you, you've met your first professionally produced play was named after a Stone Roses song. That's right, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Consciously, yeah. was it consciously an art form? I, just, I mean, I just love the the roses, and I love that song, and I just thought, yeah. wouldn't it be great to have a play called Made of Stone? <laughs> and I <laughs> think I I had the I had the t- you know I just thought I'd made of stone at the top of the page for a few different things, and then it kind of all I've, came to. I've came definitely to, done that with plays before, yeah. where you get the title like punk rock was called punk rock before I knew anything else. Yeah, I read Tom Stoppard's Rock and Roll, yeah. and thought, right, I'm if you're having rock, rock and roll, I punk, punk rock. rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there should be there should be a set of plays that have all the different musical genres. It's, well, I've done country music and country pop rock. music. Yeah. yeah, so you know, jazz would be good. I think to do. Yeah. I think that'd be good. There free, must be a play jazz. called jazz. There must be, but it's awful. There's, a, there's the Tony Morrison book, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but I bet there's a dreadful play called jazz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it has to be written. Heavy metal would be good. I might yeah. do heavy metal. Heavy notes. metal. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting quite into heavy metal as I get older. Uh, but the danger with you is I'll just end up chatting. So that's a gap between leaving Rose Bruford in 1994. Yeah, and I remember being in the script meeting for the Royal Court uh, Young Writers Festival of 2001. The meetings were in 2000. I think this is right. And there was serious talk at one point of doing two Leo Butler plays. Wow. But that's a six-year gap between you leaving Rose Bruford and having your plays produced here. Yeah. What the hell were you doing with your life, Butler? <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> well, maybe you, well, you asked me. I was just dossing around. I was right. on the dole. Right. And I was having a, uh, I was having a good time. And doing the band. Yeah. And, and able to live on the dole in London, or were you living in Sheffield? I was in London. Right. And, uh, oh, yeah, and then there's a the whole thing of... Well, the, uh, the whole thing of convincing the dole office that I was actually looking for work when I kind of... Well, and the thing is, I was, because I was working all the time. I was writing all the time. Were you? And make it, yeah, I had, wrote loads of plays in that time. How and, many? Like, oh, you writing, yeah. I think, well, I say loads, probably about four or five. Right, but it nevertheless. Like loads. And maybe I had to go to a screenplay at that time. And I'd made contact with Willie Russell because a friend of mine oh. from Liverpool, also an actor, had worked with Willie Russell when, when he was a teenager. So he, I got Willie Russell's address. So in all those years, I was sending drafts of things to Willie Russell to read. And was he, he reading them? And he was reading them. I, you know, he didn't have to at all. I was like, n- nobody, you know. And uh, and he'd come back and he he would, he would was quite clear if he thought something was crap. He'd say, I think this is, I don't think, I don't think this is. And he'd list his criticisms and then say, always say positive stuff about it and would always encourage me to keep writing. So, oh. and that was over, an, that was over an, uh, an, a number of years. And I think towards... The end about 1999, I think uh, he helped get me a sort of Peggy Ramsey award, which meant the world. He sort of suddenly got you know, yeah, well, you had money, yeah, to write something, yeah. I thought I'm never gonna go on the dole again, and I did, yeah, you know, but I but it was uh, but it but it was it was it it was just a really great, um, yeah, it's great to have that support. Do you remember the Young Writers Festival? Was it 2001? 2000. 2000. You yeah. Festival. Yeah, because I've been, I mean, the thing is that I've been on the dole yeah. for years, and yeah. I think I'd, uh, the band, we'd all kind of, all our friends, that we were quite a tight group, and we all kind of did everything together mm. for, out, out, of, out of Rose Buford, and then we all kind of went going our separate ways, and I think the band split up. And uh, I think I'd broken up with a girlfriend, mm-hmm. and I was and my friend Simon Notton, who was working at the bar at the Duke of York's when the Royal Court was at the Duke of York, said, yeah. "Why don't you fucking come and work? Yeah, just get out of the house." Right. And so I did, and the weir was on, and so and I knew the Royal Court, but I could never in all those years I could never afford to go to the theatre, never saw any, right. you know, sort of read stuff, but very rarely went went to see anything. Yeah. And so suddenly, as sort of you know. I told you know, seen the wheel like fifty times or whatever yeah. it was, and then because you're working as an usher, at working Royal as Court. an usher, yeah, and it was great. It was like the best job in the world. It still is, I think, probably one of yeah. As if you're, what did you get? What did you get from it as a writer from watching that play fifty times? It was such a beautiful play, yeah. Um, but then you you sort of sometimes you sort of you know sort of like like the back of the auditorium, sort of lie on your back and just listen to it. Yeah. And um, and you you just from a play that seems so fluid and so effortless, yeah. 
so uh, organic in the writing that mm. it just moves gently from one story to the other, and this you then you, you begin to see how it's actually really cleverly structured. Yeah, you start seeing, oh yeah, that hearing it again and again, you see, oh he's moved to this bit now, or he's yeah, how how clever the writing is and yeah. how and how how well the structure the stru- uh, the, the structure of it is. Yeah, so I think how well wrought it is. For something so yes. beautifully written to be so beautifully wrought. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And the magic of it, you know, the, the, the absolute shame. How do you kind of create that space where you feel like you... I don't... I mean, I still don't know yeah. how it manages to create this sense of that you've been with these guys for a whole night and you've actually been with them an for hour and a half. For 90 minutes, yeah. It's, it's really extraordinary, yeah. isn't yeah. it? It's an extraordinary yeah. achievement. Yeah. So it was seeing that and then there was a whole host of other plays that was yeah. on that they did at the Ambassadors, which was the equivalent of the theatre upstairs. And like, you are able to go and do a shift in those places Do a shift, so I saw uh, uh, that Roy Williams lift off, and I yeah. knew Roy, because Roy had been at Rosebery. He had, yeah. So, and I remember I remember seeing Roy after lift off, because like, he was there, and I thought, I've got to say hello to Roy, and yeah. say hello to Roy, and, and he said, what are you doing? I'm saying, I'm writing, I'm saying, yeah. writing. He says, he says you'll, you'll, you know, you'll yeah. be here, you'll be here. And that was really nice. Yeah. And, and there was Richard Bean's Toast. Yeah, and that's right. A Vernish Rob play. Yeah, Holy Mothers. Mothers yeah. Vernish Rob, yeah, yeah. All these interesting plays yeah. happening at this. Uh, um, and well, I suppose what it did was because I've been kind of on the dole and you sort of just writing what's. You, you're never sure if what you're writing is any good or. Yes. What, or not. And, um, and, you know, a few years are passing by. I think oh, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I am no good at this or whatever and then you see all this work and you think god it, you can write absolutely anything especially for this theater they mm. they just don't don't seem to care <laughs> you know they, 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 they'll put on anything you know and you know but you know it's all good stuff yeah but it can be anything the possibility yeah. is the range of work you were seeing you're going god all right okay i'll that's you sort of spurred seeing this work spurred me on so i I kept writing, then the then the court moved back into Sloan Square, and and then there was that, and then there was that early season of work. Yeah. Um, Jim Cartwright's Hard Fruit. Hard Fruit, exactly. Mark, Collins, Dublin Carol. That's right. It's a really beautiful play. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And um, the country, Martin Crimp. Martin Crimp's country, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and then a little bit Port, later, not fourth. Portia Coughlin. No, it Marina was Cars, Rafteries. Yeah, after his hill. Yeah, great. And were you working here as an yeah, author yeah, when yeah. that was all going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, it was just started all kind of piecing together a little bit because I was, I knew that I was writing better than I had done for a long time. Yeah. And I started, I mean, I started being cheeky and finding addresses of people. Great. At the court and saying, yeah. I'm going to find Richard Wilson's address. I'm going to send him a play. And I did. Never heard back, which is <laughs> very, na- very naughty. Yeah. And then, um, and then uh, I got Ola Animashuan. Yeah. Working, I sort of learned that the Young Writers program was something that existed, mm-hmm. and uh, and and got sent two or maybe maybe just two plays to to Ola, who was running the Young Writers program, and he called me up and we had a little meeting in the bar, and he was he gave heaps a lot. I wrote I'd written this play called Giddy Little Kippers about yeah. these these kids, yeah, and he sort of he um sort of praise on that and say we've got the Young Writers Festival coming up soon you should yeah. think about submitting it and was like, oh fantastic mm-hmm. and uh, but it was quite an old play in a way I'd written you know I'd written it before so and I remember being at home one morning and three flyers for the Young Writers Festival saying so submit your play <laughs> came through the door thought, all oh, from Ola who was standing yeah, outside <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> with a hood up <laughs> But, uh, and uh, I remember, I remember thinking, why have this? Why have I got three? <laughs> and I'd already got two to submit. One was Giddy Little Kippers, and this other thing I'd written, uh, which was about aliens. And then, uh, and I thought, well, it's three. I better submit a third one. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I've got. I don't know how long I'd got. It wasn't very long. Yeah. So I thought I'll sit down and write a third one, and uh, and so I did it. And I just did that thing, a bit like redundant. We 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 mentioned when. Um, uh, I just sat. I, I was me and my friend Sharif were living together in Plumstead at the time, and he was always away. So I had kind of had the house to myself. Yeah. So I just kind of when I wasn't going in ushering, I would yeah. just sit there, sort of knocking out uh, what what was made of stone. Wow. Oh no, I know, and I lied because I'm not not lying entirely because Ola had invited me on to the Young Writers Program. Right. 
And I'd done, I'd done a, I'd started doing a group with Nicola Baldwin, right? Yeah, who ran the Young yeah. Writers Program, that's and right. I also did a group with Hanif Qureshi. Who yeah, was that's doing, right. Yeah, and he they was were in the group in two thousand. Yeah, yeah, and they were both very different. And I think they were both so different because Nicola would set really practical exercises, and I think some of those exercises helped sort of form some of those early scenes of Made of Stone. Right, do exercises like what's in the character's pockets right. and think of, you know, think of a character going on a walk and what are they thinking and all, yeah. you know, just, you know, gentle exercises that get you yeah. into the head of the characters mm-hmm. and are really helpful. So they helped form those early scenes. But Hanif was, you know, sit around with a pint and <laughs> you could still smoke and, and yeah. talk and talk about, talk about novels and yeah. talk about writing in general. So very, you know, so it was a lot more laid, yeah. laid back and, yeah. um, uh, the church of Hanif Qureshi, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. which is a nice place to be. Yeah, it's a nice church. So it's a, a, a so I'd started doing those courses, and then and then it was around the time that the festival was coming up. So then I wrote Made of Stone quite quickly. I remember having an early scene, which was two brothers at a graveside, yeah, and um, of their father, and and in their little conversation about well, what's going on with you, you know, or, oh, it's been a year since he died, and, yeah badly paraphrasing yeah but interesting that conversation with one older brother trying to help a younger brother trying to sort of come out of his shell you know you feel like oh they mention a third brother oh good and they mention their mother and there's something going on with the mother within that short little scene a whole family was formed. yeah yeah and also and i thought i can't remember i mean i'd written the the giddy little kippers play being set in sheffield and i think I think seeing seeing all those plays at the Royal, Royal Court, thinking I don't have to write something that's sort of set on the moon. I can write something that's can sort of go back to yeah. Sheffield and yeah. uh, and and th- and think about you know growing growing up there. And but even but even if you're living in Plumstead, yeah, writing about Sheffield is kind of writing about an imaginary world. In a way, yeah. I mean, even when even when we write, I always think even when you you know when I write about Stockport. Yeah, the Stockport in my plays becomes an imaginary world. It's yeah. not actually. It's like it's not like a documentary recreation of Stockport. No, it can never it's an imaginary be. Imaginary space. It? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and its beauty is its imaginary space. I mean, you got that great thing that that uh, Conor McPherson does as well. Is that and I was thinking about that. The more specific something is, yeah. you know, if you you mention place names in you know, streets or whatever in yeah. Stockport or in Sheffield or in Dublin, yeah. The more universal it becomes. Exactly, the universality comes from specificity, yeah. not yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. so, tell me just a little bit about the process of writing a play when you're writing it all night. Are you like sleeping? Do you sleep when you're writing either redundant or made of stone? Get a little bit. I mean, when I did those overnight stints at the Royal Court, yeah. you know, I don't think I did actually. I and think how was, what is on. that like to write through the night? To write through to dawn. It's How does that affect your energy or your brain or your writing? Well, if you can stay awake, it means the play's, the play's going well. Right. And you're just kind of, if you start getting drowsy and stuff, it means that maybe you should stop, I think, because then you know you won't be doing um, yeah. work. I mean, even now, I've just from the kind of hours that I keep, often I, I work quite late into the night. Right. And I know if it's kind of like three in the morning and I'm shattered, or two in the morning, maybe, yeah. maybe exaggerating slightly, yeah. that I should put it down, put the work down, but if I'm able to keep going... Um, then there's an energy in it which is sustaining yeah, you in some way. Yeah, yeah. But I'm I've always got a plan. I mean, even with me, I've never got a. Uh, I never sort of plan a play exactly. But you're always work. You all like what? What? When you say you've got a plan, what do you know? A skeleton of something. Right. Like like with Made of Stone, it was the two brothers, and I knew that there were all these other characters that they mentioned. Yeah. And I thought, okay, so it's, it's with these brothers. What can happen next? And you kind of think, oh well, yeah. The younger brother meets a, a girl, a runaway girl, and they. Have this little story together, and the middle brother has so, uh, an argument with somebody at the building site that he's at, and you know, and you sort of make little beats of where it might go, where the story might go. One of the things when I remember working chair in the office with you, one of the things that I was always taken by was your use of drawings. Is this right? Am I remembering yeah. this right? That you drew images from the stage. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, it's about it's it's more it's it, it it's less about creating what I think might be a stage picture. It's more, but it's about the structure, and I think it's always the, it's always finding the structure. And with redundant, I remember it was yeah. making the decision quite early on that we would see a year in this Lovely. girl's life, Lovely. 
and then you've kind of got something to work with. You've got parameters yeah. there to you've work got beginning, with. Beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Year. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you've got, and, and, then, and then with that, if it's a year, you've got all the seasons to exactly. play with, which is, yeah. can be really, really helpful. Uh, so, and any drawings that, yeah, I do doodle a lot. Yeah. And they're, they're often just stick drawings or whatever, but yeah. they kind of get a, it's just a sense of the movement of, of something because, you know, you know that. A play has to get more dramatic. Got to get more <laughs> exciting or whatever as it, yeah, as it yeah, goes on. It's yeah. got to get more so, so you can. The pressure has to rise. Yeah. 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 And um, yeah, it was a Graham Wybrow that again said that you know every play is kind of begins in a state of anxiety, moves to desperation, moves to crisis. I thought that's quite a nice little yeah. arc there to, yeah. to work with. So it's always kind of thinking well. Having a sense of where it might end is always helpful. Like with yeah. Redundant, I knew that I wanted Lucy sat on the bed looking out at the snow falling. Yeah. It's kind of a romantic yeah. image in a way, but it was kind of kind of quite bleak in the end. Um, but I knew I wanted that to work too. And often with plays, I have a sense of what I want the, the final image to be. Right. And, right. Um, and with Lucky Dog, I've mentioned this before, when, you know, I, I knew it wouldn't be the end image, but I knew I wanted a woman turning into a dog and barking at her husband, yeah. sort of circling the armchair. And I drew that picture, like a woman yeah. with a dog's face barking. Yeah. I thought, well, that'd be great in a play. You know, <laughs> so, so it's almost like the whole play was sort of built built around getting to that that point. It was an extraordinary image. And Linda Bassett. And, the, and she and was Linda incredible. Bassett, Williams. Yeah. Absolutely. And she, yeah, it was yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. The, I mean, Redundant, you've spoken about, and people probably ask you about this all the time, it was the first time of... Not quite a first-time playwright, but a playwright really early on in their career had had a play in the theatre downstairs yeah. since Jez Butterworth's Mojo. Yeah. So the first time for ten years. Yeah. And what was that like? Well, it was really exciting. I yeah. mean, in hindsight, you could, you know, there is an argument to say, should it have been on the main stage? I don't know. And part of me thinks, yeah, of course it should. Fuck it, yeah. It's a really good, it's a really good play. Yeah, it should but, be uh, in the theatre wall, Haymarket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Broadway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I don't know. It it was really exciting, and um, and working with with uh, Dominic on it, who you know, and this is Dominic Cook. Dominic Cook. Yeah. There was, and all the I suppose the most. And you're in a rehearsal room, and it's very intimate with the cast, and you're working through the script, and you're doing all that that work, and you're doing a, a level of dramaturgical work with Dominic, who's great yeah. on that, and working with these amazing actors. And so it's a very intimate place, but all the while you've got this sense of, oh, it's going to move to like the Royal Court and on, yeah. the, on that big stage. Yeah. And having seen so many plays on there, mm. oh, it's, it's, so, it's just so brilliant. You know, it's so exciting, and sort of have to ground, ground yourself and... As much as you think, you know, um, think about, you remember what you're doing the play for and what the play is about, you know, you can't help but have that excitement, that sort of yeah. excitement. I've got a fucking play on the road. Is the that a bad thing, do you think? Or No, yeah. especially early on, I don't know, you know, I think. I still get excited by it yeah. now. Yeah. I think there's something about the architecture of this theatre in particular because of the decision early on in the theatre's history to reveal the back wall. Yeah. So whenever I see an old picture of one of the old 90s shows from the 50s or the 60s, yeah. you can see the same back wall as you see when you do a show down And you now. think about all those plays and those, yeah, those Jocelyn Herbert sets exactly. and, and the, all the, the, the Beckett that was on there and those yeah. early Brecht productions. You yeah. think, oh, I'm on the same stage as, yes. the, you know, plays. That's, a, that's a real honour. Yeah. Um, and then the set gets, and I love when, when the set is being built and you sort of creep into the theatre and yeah. watch them, you know, all the guys here, you know, yeah, proper elbow grease work, putting yeah. up the set and putting in doors and, yeah. yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, I always think there's something intoxicating about the idea of so many brilliant people working so hard to make something that I've imagined in my head turn into a real thing in actual life. Yeah. It's like you have a dream and then it people is. work really hard to make your dream something that's actually yeah. true. And do you, do you find that, um, it's ever complete. Have you ever had it at moments where it's kind of completely as you imagined it? Ah. I don't know. I always think I, but I always think that for me, what is realised is more beautiful than what I'd imagined. Yeah. I think I think I'm going to be thinking about that for days now. Yeah. Was do you? 
I think there's been a couple of times, but obviously not exactly because I wasn't thinking about those actors or whatever. Yeah. But there's 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 a scene in Made of Stone that I thought, wow, that's just kind of how it was in my head. It's extraordinary. But um, and maybe there's been a couple of other times, but yeah, I, I'm, generally it's a lot better or a lot more formed and feels a lot more. Was um, it difficult to follow up redundant? <clears throat> I followed, I came at, what, what was really good, and people said it was a bad thing to do, but I went straight from redundant to doing, uh, I did a play for a company called Theatre Centre, which was, which toured around a play called, I wrote a play called Devotion, which was a crazy, yeah. wild, absurdist war yeah. play for, for yeah. kids. And, uh, yeah. and, and, I, and that toured around schools, and yeah, some people say, well, why did you go, go from the main season? I just really liked the idea of taking a play to schools, and the, the and this particular play. So I did that. But then I was commissioned to write a, a new play for the court. And I think I had one attempt at it. And it wasn't very good. It was Ooh. sort of a rush. It did... T- uh, yeah, the next one would have, would have been Lucky Dog. Mm-hmm. And it did take a, a while to crystallise. But um, it was kind of always there. You know, I sometimes think of writing as... like Writing a play like the play already exists. It's just your sort of chipping away at something to try and find it huh. do you know and and, yeah. and then the, oh yeah there it is there it yeah, is. there's yeah, that yeah. line or there's that scene yeah oh, it was kind of always there somehow and oh. and you get a moment of crystallization when you know you can sort of just sit down and write the thing yeah. but for me that process of getting to that point off can often take a long time you know i think it took at least sort of at least sort of six or seven months grafting Tearing what, my hair out. What are you doing with the grafting? How, what, how is a grafting day for you when you're doing those six months grafting? I'm just the the thing I most often do. I still do with plays is not have any. Sometimes I get a play where I kind of very feel very clearly what the play is and yeah. what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. That sometimes happens, and so it can be quite easy to write or easy yeah. to get into. Mm-hmm. And then other times it's just you just have a, an inkling of something or an image of something. And I, and rather than sitting down and trying to interrogate that with notes or character analysis, I suppose, but, and sometimes I kick myself and think, why didn't I do that early on? Mm-hmm. Because you do, there's always a point where you go, you know, there's always a point where you're going to sit down and go, what is the character doing in the scene? Mm-hmm. What is it they want? What is it they're trying to do? Mm-hmm. Like with Boy, you know, I did that quite quite a few drafts down the line to suddenly ask, oh God, what's he doing again? But early stages, early stages, it's just kind of just throwing things, throwing things at the wall and seeing if they stick. Writing dialogue. Writing dialogue, writing scenes. Not writing notes, writing dialogue. Writing dialogue, yeah, putting two characters on a page and writing and seeing if they work. And and the the thing with Lucky Dog was that I had these characters called Eddie and Sue, and I had those from really early on. Right. And at one point they were two serial killers, because I'd been reading a bit about Fred and Rose West. Yeah. And and I kind of turned them into serial killers, and then that that didn't work. It was. Did you rubbish. read Happy Like Murderers? No. Sorry, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Read Happy Like Murderers. Okay. No, not. Yeah, Happy Like Murderers. Yeah. Gordon Burns' book. Yeah. Which takes its title from David Hare's Skylight. Okay. And it's the most distressing book I've ever read. Oh my anyway, God. carry on. Oh, you had the right. serial killers. Yeah. Serial yeah. killers, and then I had a scene, uh, and then I put them on a beach somewhere, which was, and I had it was going to be a beach play. The beach play, but uh, but then that came late in the last scene. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So I did end up you you know all that stuff that you do when you're sort of messing about trying stuff out. Yeah. You know it does feed back into the work somehow, yeah. and then, uh, and I think I was trying after Lucky Dog to think I'm not going to set something in Sheffield now. I'm done with that. I'm going to I'm going to set it in Blackheath or somewhere yeah, or in the state. Which is facing the crowd. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you know, yeah. They talk about Black, yeah, it's Shoreditch. It's facing, right, the okay. but yeah, I thought I'd write something in London, and and then in the end, I just thought, no, nah, just why not? Why not have it in Sheffield again? Why not? So and that was why the hell? Why not? So I did, and then and then it was. I think it was that and um, setting it on Christmas Day, and again yeah. having that structure of rather than a year, you got the day, one day. A particularly epic day. Yeah, yeah. We have conventions of narrative yeah. contained within yeah. it anyway, yeah. And yeah. Um, there was something I remember again, a chat because I think I've been working on it a, a while, but not hadn't submitted anything. And Ian Rickson and Graham Wybrow called me in just to say, "How's it going? What's mm. going on?" Mm. 
and we just had a general chat and I remember Graham mentioning a play and I don't know what it was but he mentioned the sort of the silence in the play our character put on a record and just let the record play yeah. in its entirety I don't know what it was what he yeah. was referring to but I remember it struck me I thought yeah there's something in that and there's something you know just playing with the because I knew I had them sat down at a Christmas dinner table but what do you fill that silence with and then you suddenly realise oh the play is all about filling the silence and the silence is kind of the main character, really, um, in a way, uh, and to make that the thing. That's really beautiful. And and and, you know that, well, throughout the play, especially in that early scene, that's all Sue, who Linda Bassett played. Yeah. Uh, the couple, though, the children have left home, and it's the first Christmas alone with these, um, this husband and wife. And, well, what the silence is is a kind of uh, insecurity. Um, sense of self that's been shattered um, who are we and and then within the ritual and you've talked about a lot about interrupted rituals yeah, before yeah something Stephen Jeffries talked to me about yeah yeah, yeah which drama com- a story comes from when an, in, a ritual is interrupted yeah so people have the same thing they do the same thing every day they do the same thing every day and then one day something something bam. yeah and and that's a re- it's a really helpful it's great, bit of it? a toolkit that yeah and, um, and I suppose with this it's you've got in with the, and with a Christmas dinner, you've got all the fun of, you know, crackers and exactly. eating exactly. and stuff, and, you, and, the, and what they become. And so from, um, I think maybe I, I'd start thinking that this, after he'd done it, it's got to be this like, big play yeah. about big ideas, but I don't know what the ideas are. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's got to be something, you know, yeah. and not in Sheffield or whatever. And then it became something um, very s- small, but... It's heart that became something quite. Yeah, it, was, it feels like an entire marriage, entire lifetime, yeah. an entire family. So, I mean, one of the disadvantages, if you're taking, so redundant was two thousand and one, Lucky Dog was yeah. two thousand and four. You got devotion between, which is a three year gap between productions. Yeah. What do you? I mean, economically, that's tricky. Oh. But also, what are you doing? <laughs> Let's not talk about economics. <laughs> what are you doing with your day? I mean, like, how? What's a Leo Butler working day? If you're writing at that pace, where? where like, what did you do yesterday? Well, not necessarily yesterday, because that was a well, that's a random day. What's a typical was, Leo Butler writing day? I was in Venice yesterday. <laughs> it wasn't with Sasha with Wears. Sting. No, not with, with Sasha Wears. <laughs> but um, uh, no, I mean, it's changed over the years. I mean, now. What over the last few years I've normally since my daughter be, started school I kind yeah. of keep her school hours right so when she goes to school I go to work and you know um, my wife is often working or but I, I mean it's, it's just it's just they're, they're just nice parameters to yeah. to have and uh, kind of nine thirty till three o'clock yeah and yeah. then stop and then it's family time yeah and all of that I mean I have quite a some you know like I said before I don't get out that much right and it's just family time and then there'll come a point quite late. Maybe, you know, when I usually start, maybe start about 10 o'clock and I'll work right through till 2 or 3 in the morning. One of the ways in which you did fill in the time that it takes and the plays which are slow and earn a bit of money was by through accidentally defining an entire generation of playwrights here at the Royal Court by doing what I did and getting the job at the Young Writers Programme. Uh. What? (laughs) (laughs) What? What? I don't know what question to ask about that. You did it for seven years. Um, Is that right? More like nine, I think. Nine years. Yeah. yeah. What sustained you? Why did you keep going for nine years? Was it just economics, or what were you getting from it? If it had just been... I mean, obviously, having a being a playwright is, is kind of tough, so mm. that's why so many of us teach as well. Yeah. And, uh, so th- but it's not only that, because if I think if I hated it, I wouldn't have stuck it out. Yeah, you know, it'd have been like doing the A levels. I would have probably just jumped ship at some point. Yeah, but um, you're an intelligent, I loved creative it. person. I if loved, you want to make money, yeah. go and do something else. But you don't yeah. make money doing jobs like this. What did you love about it? I just loved the writers and 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 seeing them create plays and and especially, um, learning because it was a big step. Because I'd never done anything like that before. Standing in front of a group of people and sort of run a course mm-hmm. and I quite enjoyed that element of it that that role uh, but I just I just loved working with all these young writers and who and there was such a range of people who'd done loads of stuff or done very little and 
and the idea of how to and the challenge of how do you shape a course that can help help these writers come out at the end with something that they can be proud of. Is it possible to teach playwriting? Sorry, you were going to say something and then answer that. Um, well, it's a good question because I, it's a question that I still don't have the answer for. I, I, I think you can, you can help. Yeah. And I think probably anybody, if they're kind of forced long enough, can, can write a play. Right. But there is, but you do sometimes, you know, you do come across writers and you just think they've just got that thing they can just write, they can just write a scene, it just comes naturally to them. Yeah. And maybe some other writers who, who maybe struggle and, and maybe they yeah. maybe with their way of expressing is through another form or something. Yeah. You know, you do come across that from time to time. So I wouldn't say exclusively anybody can, you know, write a play. I think some people that, that will might always struggle could you it's not possible or is it possible to identify what it is no no I don't know what it, I think it's a commitment to it I mean I remember there's two I remember being stood doing a group and they were reading out work and you kind of and everybody's reading their own work to each other and you kind of you just huck onto somebody speaking you go what the what is that Mm. What is that I'm hearing there? It's something kind of you don't know quite what it is, and if it's about the use of language or the the urgency behind it. But you, you turn around and it's Brad Birch reading a, a scene that he's just written. You go, God, I haven't heard that voice before. That sounds some like something special there. Mm. Mm. Or when Polly Stenham comes in and her sheer force of you know her passion for what it is she wanted to, wanted to do uh, wanted to do at that time yeah. it was like you just knew you just knew that she would she would create something yeah. but that yeah and that was mo- almost as much about her passion for the theatre as much as anything else yeah. so I don't know it's, every, it, 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 it's difficult to you know I loved them all you know and there was there was I don't know if there was any writers in those groups that I that I that I didn't get along with or didn't think were capable of writing something special and it does felt um i think one of the reasons why it was good to step step down uh step down from that role was because you kind of you kind of want everybody to have their play on and you want to find a way to get everybody to you know whatever route it takes and then you know that 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 can't happen it was very lucky at the start of running the young rights program and it did continue all the way through that mm-hmm. there was a real i remember uh, dominic cook take taking over and wanting to put new playwrights into the rather than just in the festival into the main programming, yeah. which means you could have new plays running all the way through the year, and that was, in a sense, I was lucky to sort of come in at the same time as that because yeah. suddenly there was I could if if there were if there were plays that were that were that were interesting like, um, you know, Anya Rice, Anya Rice, Reese's uh, first explosion of a play. Yeah, you know that if you pass passed it on, it had it passed it on to the right people. It had a really good chance that it could. Then make its way to the, make its way to the stage rather than every wa- two years. And then watching a watching like somebody like Anya or Polly or Brad, go yeah. from somebody who's sitting in the groups and the site and the kind of it's still a pretty kind of it's a beautiful building and I love it. Yeah. But you can still kind of feel the old London transport workers kind of staff canteen about the building. It still feels yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. scrappy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching them go from those groups to having their plays in the theatre. What was that magic. like? It's yeah. just magic, isn't it? And, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you kind of you like to think you had a little bit of part, a little bit of a part in it, um, and um, but at the end of the day, you don't because it's all down to them, and the circumstances are, are you know at the time you know the theatre is actively looking for plays and they're producing the plays. Um, I think the way think, the writers have spoken about you in this room over the course of these podcasts would suggest you might have had a small part in it. Yeah, and the way you talk about. Willie Russell, or the way you talk about the woman who taught you in your drama school in yeah. Sheffield. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it was. You know, I think one of the things I did, uh, if because you, you know teaching, we all kind of we used a lot of the same exercises. Yeah. you know, we all kind yeah. of do the same thing. But I think normally stolen from Stephen Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah. There's quite <laughs> yeah. a few. He must be fuming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's um. <laughs> 
I think what it was, I, I, one thing I did want to do was to create a really open environment. And, and, that, and I remember introducing these super, group, super groups that would be a, a course that was set not over 10 or 12 weeks, but was set over something like 28 weeks or yeah. something over a whole summer. Yeah. And I think that really helps just so these groups would really bond and could create a, a so they could feedback on each other's work, work and be open and bring stuff. And, and bring their work in and, and, and be able to sort of critique their own plays together as a group and create a, an environment where they felt safe and um, and, and free to create. Yeah. You know, that, 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 you know, yeah, I think that might, might have been significant, I don't know. I think it might have been. Yeah. Leo Butler, thank you very, very much. Indeed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So we have this moment now on series two of the podcast, uh, where rather than just ending it, we get questions or facts from Anushka. Oh, been... it's only facts if something's been said incorrectly, which okay. it hasn't been this week. Oh, um, good, very good. But also, as a side note, finally we know what supergroup actually means. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You created it, and the definition seems to be of the supergroup uh, something that takes over. A really long period of time. Yep. So great, thank yeah, you. But yeah, now yeah, people yeah. Find yeah. It Very good. good. Yeah, and also, <laughs> if you're going to commit to a group doing that, then you've got to be rigorous in who you're putting right, in it. That's right. Yeah. Like, like an old, you know, seventy group. The super group was a, a musical term. Yeah. From that's the right. kind of early seventies, where people would go from like the Who and Led Zeppelin. That's right. To be in other bands, and yeah. that would be the super group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we've got a different. Cause so basically, you're like the godfather of the podcast because you get mentioned in oh every single episode. So because of that, I have like an an ultimate cultural would you rather. But in case you're not familiar with the game, the normal would you rather is this: Would you rather have a tonglets carpet or teeth that are wooden? First thing that Oh, uh, what's the question again? To... Your tongue's going to be carpet forever, or your teeth are going to be wooden. The teeth. Right, good. So you know how to play. This is the ultimate cultural. Would you rather? Okay. Would you rather a world without ever having written one of your plays, or a world without plays from any of the writers that you have taught inspired? Oh my that's god! A, that's a fucker of a that's question. It's a good one. Ah, I have to say, my uh, I'd rather have my own. Yeah, legend. <laughs> <laughs> you don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got some self-preservation. Yeah. <laughs> great. That's great. It took a long while to get there as well. You know, to yeah, exactly. Get something on. No, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the shop at the theatre. Come to the theatre. Come and see the plays. We're at Sloan Square. Come along. Come and see everything. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre. It's presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by the remarkable Anushka Warden and Emily Legg. <laughs>